Welcome to Shame Watch, a guilt-free dive into those massive movie failures that we hate to love. Usually, each week we look at a movie that either we or our guests love, but society shames them for. We peek in each nook and cranny for every bright spot, keeping the public at bay while watching these movies like the miracles that they are. I am Kenny Madison, Chief Archivist for FlatFilms.com. We release at least one podcast every single week. Now, why isn't James doing the copy, you might be asking? Well, as you might have noticed for the rest of the month, we've kind of accidentally taken a month off just to process literally the litany of catastrophes that are going on in the world at this time. But luckily, we do have a backup plan. You see, my friends and I, my non-podcast friends, so sorry, James, Aaron, and Olivia, my non-podcast friends demanded that I... Kenny Masson, Chief Archivist of FlatFilms.com, put together a commentary track for Star Trek VI. So that's exactly what I did. What you are about to hear is an extemporaneously generated audio commentary for Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. What you'll be hearing is me taking questions from co-workers, providing a commentary for the entire movie. Now, you might be telling yourself, cool, I can skip this week. I have no idea what Star Trek is. Is it the one with the Wookiees? Well, first off, it's not the one with the Wookiees. It's the one with the ones with the pointed ears. And second, this is an audio commentary that is meant specifically for people that have no idea what Star Trek is. So we're coming in and I'm trying to provide as much context for you so you can stay apprised of what the heck is going on. The commentary can be a little screen specific. So what I would recommend is that you put on a copy of Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country. You can find them on Amazon Prime. You can find it on Hulu and in the likely event that, well, it's not on CBS All Access, is it? They just have the rest of Star Trek, but not Star Trek VI. Or you can literally just, I, I don't know, come over to my apartment and I'll slide one of my Blu-ray copies under my door for you because quarantine is still on. But I've mixed in the soundtrack, so you should be able to listen along just in case you are out for a stroll and want some good Star Trek VI goodness. Uh, you might notice a little bit of a drop in audio quality. That's because I did this just off of my laptop mic. Right now I'm recording in my professional microphone. This is my absolute favorite movie of all time. Maybe we'll do a future episode on it proper. But for now, here's this audio commentary to satiate your voracious appetites. Until next week where we will be returning. I'm really excited for your next week's episode. So let me just say it. It's not exactly wild speed summer, but it might be just as fun. So sit back or walk. I don't know what you do whenever you're listening to this podcast, driving, cowering, whatever you do while you're listening to an episode of Shame Watch. Just continue to do that and listen to an atypical audio commentary presented by yours truly. Oh, and while we're here, because... Once the episode's done, the episode's just going to be done. If you can, please support secure.actblue.com slash donate slash bail underscore funds underscore George underscore Floyd. Or just go to actblue.com and look for this. What this does is you make a donation and it splits it among 70 plus different bail funds. You can help alleviate some of the financial burden that is placed 
on those that might be erroneously or unjustly behind bars. It's a critical time in human history, so please do what you can. And if you're looking for other places to donate, please visit one of our social profiles on either Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you name it. We've got a list of charities that you can donate to or just Google what you can do, or in my case, DuckDuckGoWit. So kick back, relax, put on a copy of Star Trek VI, put your earbuds in, and listen to my audio commentary of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and we'll see you next week. Oh, also, there's going to be a countdown, so take it away, Past Kenny. Let's do it. Pressing play in five, four, three, two... One play. Of the old style Paramount logo. I've got a lot of nostalgia for this. Uh, to do this like a proper audio commentary, I must introduce myself. Hello, everyone. I am Kenny Madison. I am providing a commentary for Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. I'm also hopefully going to be taking questions uh, from people that are submitting questions to me. Uh, the first question being, which character is Kenny? Uh, I am not in this movie uh, at all. That is not something that is a thing uh, at all. Uh, don't know what you want me to say. Uh, the first thing that we saw after the Paramount logo was for Gene Roddenberry. Uh, for those that might not know, Gene Roddenberry was the creator of Star Trek. Uh, he first pitched it to NBC in 1964 and was able to make a pilot starring Jeffrey Hunter, uh, Leonard Nimoy, and Majel Barrett, who would later become his wife. Uh, the next question that I have is, do I have a second favorite Nicholas Meyer film? Uh, yes, it's Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Uh, great question. Uh, so Gene Roddenberry created Star Trek in 1964. The pilot did not get picked up by NBC. Uh, but luckily enough, he was able to be commissioned to make a second pilot because the studio believed enough in the premise of Star Trek. So they made another pilot starring William Shatner, the very star of this movie. Uh, Leonard Nimoy and uh, DeForest Kelly not at the time but that pilot was picked up the original Star Trek ran for three years uh, was cancelled after that third season uh, but had enough of a fan base that the franchise was resurrected in 1979 with Star Trek the motion picture the first of the six what are called the original series films uh, Next question, is this your favorite Star Trek movie and why? This is my favorite Star Trek movie. This is my favorite movie, period. I think a lot of that has to do with nostalgia. I literally grew up with this film. There isn't a time that I remember in this life where this movie did not exist. This is my mom's favorite Star Trek movie. Uh, and one of the reasons that I love this movie so much is, A, I just love Star Trek. That's why I'm doing this. Uh, and B, I like my Star Trek with space politics. I just like space politics in my Star Trek. It infects the actions of the crew here, infects the environment. We actually get to see the environment react to uh, the actions of the crew of the Enterprise. Uh, additionally, like the best kinds of Star Trek, it has something to say about the world and what it was made. 
this movie was released December 13, 1991, uh, two, three-ish years after the Berlin Wall fell. And it's very much generated from that. I like explosions. That's why I just like explosions. Uh, first shot is the USS Excelsior, NCC 2000. Who do we see? But Captain Hikaru Sulu, played by George Takei. Uh, this is the fourth time that we have seen the USS Excelsior, although it has a brand new registry number. Uh, I have no idea what kind of T is in there. Uh, but yes, the Excelsior uh, first introduced in Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, but originally it was NX-2000, and as you could probably see, it's NCC-2000. Um, I don't think that the T is Earl Grey. Again, there's a lot of T talk. Um, that t table that's holding the tea, or was holding the tea before the teacup actually fell down, is actually hiding a gimbal because this entire bridge set is on a is is a moving set. Uh, you probably see the meme where the ship just kind of shakes back and forth uh, because the actors are just kind of shaking around. This time they, I guess, they had enough money to I don't know, shake it a little bit. Whatever. Uh, anyways, uh, like I said, this is the fourth appearance of the Excelsior in the movies. Uh, see it in, uh, again, first seen in Star Trek 3. We've seen it in 4 and 5, only in archival footage in Star Trek 5. Uh, but now we see that Captain Sulu, uh, Sulu was previously the navigator uh, on the USS Enterprise. Don't worry, you'll see that later. Don't tell me that was any meteor shower. Negative, sir. Subspace shockwave originated at bearing 323 Mark 75. Location? It's Praxis, sir. It's a Klingon moon. Praxis is their key. Uh, now, this opening was inspired by the real life Chernobyl disaster. Oh, also, just right there, uh, that's Janice Rand, played by Grace Lee Whitney. Janice Rand was one of the original cast members of the original 1966 Star Trek, uh, but was let go after 13-ish episodes. Uh, he was, she was originally the love interest for Captain Kirk, and then they wanted Kirk to be a womanizer. And so uh, she was let go. Uh, Janice Rand appeared in several of the movies, Later, uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek 3 and 4, and now she actually has a media role as the communications officer on the USS Excelsior. But the genesis for this idea uh, is, again, Chernobyl, but in space. Uh, this was something that was dreamed up by Leonard Nimoy uh, to give a little bit of context of where the franchise was at this point. Um, their overseeing producer, uh, the overseeing producer of the movies up to this point was a man named Harv Bennett, uh, who was formerly a TV producer, and he kind of successfully done uh, the Star Trek movies two through five, bringing them in cheaply and making sure to bring a high return. Didn't do that on Star Trek five. What are we doing here? For anyone that doesn't know, that's Captain Kirk and his friends. Kind of a big deal, guys. 
Uh, Tanner asks, are the Romulans a part of this film? Kind of? Really just one Romulan. Uh, my favorite Star Trek character of all time, uh, Jeremy Olsen asked, my favorite Star Trek character of all time, probably Dr. Leonard McCoy. Uh, he's not Spock. He's not Kirk. Instead, he's just kind of a guy that works hard. My personal weakness is dudes that work hard. And they're just like, it's a job. I'd rather just be anywhere. But instead, I'm just kind of going to stick this knife into my leg and I'm going to do my work. Uh, so, Dr. Leonard McCoy, the guy on the far left-hand side. Well, not now. Uh, oh, this is important. Everyone, everyone shut up. Everyone shut up. Pay attention. You got to pay attention to see who this dude is. Uh, for those that are looking to sync with me. My time code is 805 now. Uh, that dude with the bowl cut. That's Leonard Nimoy playing Spock. It's, it's kind of his deal. Uh, he played Spock in eight of the Star Trek movies, uh, the first six original series movies. And then he came back to make appearances in the first two J.J. Abrams movies. And uh, was unable to <laughs> make an appearance in the uh, third, I guess, bad robot Star Trek movie, Star Trek Beyond, because he had shuffled loose the mortal coil. High Council. He proposes to commence negotiations at once. Uh, that dude in the bottom right hand corner, you might recognize him from doing things, acting. Uh, that's Brock Peters, uh, most famously from To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, but also, he's playing a Starfleet Admiral here uh, named Admiral Cartwright. Uh, you had seen him previously in Star Trek IV. Yeah. It's just sweet that he's here. I must protest. To offer Klingon safe haven within Federation space is suicide. Brock Peters had difficulty getting through this line of dialogue. He's talking about how horrible the Klingons are. Uh, this movie is very much... An analogy for uh, the escalating tensions between the Americans and the Russians at the end of the Cold War. Um, and additionally, uh, fairly obvious references to just race in general. And Brock Peters being the activist that he is, had great difficulty getting through those lines, which is why they're stitched together the way that they are. That we act now to support the Gorkin Initiative. Lest more conservative elements persuade his empire. Uh, this Starfleet headquarters set is actually, I think, only has two walls. Uh, they just cleverly shifted the walls around so they could stretch out the budget. You can see that the walls just kind of fade out into darkness. That's because they cheat. And I believe that this was filmed in a church in Los Angeles. Uh, to answer your question, Johnny, uh, yes. Or space. You could just say that this was filmed in space. Anyways, getting back to the... In a church, not the church of LA. I think there's more than one church in Los Angeles, Jeremy. Uh, great question. It's filmed inside of a church, I think. I could definitely be wrong. But I... You know. No. Shut up. But anyways, a little bit more about this movie. Uh, Hart Bennett uh, did wanted to continue on and actually make a prequel uh, to the series because I don't know if you can tell, but these guys are kind of getting along at the tooth at this point. 
absolutely love this scene. We volunteered. There is an old Vulcan proverb. Only Nixon could go to China. There's a little bit of debate as to whether either Leonard Nimoy or director Nicholas Meyer actually came up with the Nixon going to China line. I know your father's the Vulcan ambassador, for heaven's sake. Do you know how I feel about this? They're animals, Jim. There is an historic opportunity here. Don't believe them. Don't trust them. They are dying. Let them die. I just want to hear that. It's great. Got so much of this dialogue here to my mind. Uh, Johnny uh, asks me, who do I side with? I side on the side of peace and justice. That's the side that I side with. It's not Kirk versus Spock or the Federation versus the Klingons. It's us working together. Oh, for the folks that might be listening uh, that have absolutely no idea what the heck is going on, let me just give you a brief premise. Uh, we are with Starfleet, specifically Captain Kirk. Captain on the bridge. As you were. Lieutenant. Valeris, sir. It's kind of important. We were told that you Anyways, Starfleet is the military arm of basically the 23rd century version of the United States, the United Federation of Planets. So all these folks parading around red, part of Starfleet, and they are trying to protect the Federation. But in this case, they're trying to make peace with the Klingons, because, you know, peace is just good, man. Why why wouldn't you want peace, dude? Uh, but anyways, going back to the genesis of this movie. Uh, producer Hart Bennett wanted to make a prequel because these folks were getting a little bit long in the tooth. There was a script and there's some concept art for what was titled Star Trek The First Adventure, which would be uh, about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy meeting at Starfleet Academy. Uh, obviously, that movie did not get made, although there were very similar ideas to the 2009 Star Trek movie. I don't think that J.J. Abrams intentionally did any of that, or rather the folks that wrote that script, Roberta Orsi and Alex Kurtzman. Look at, look at how cute William Shatner is. Oh my goodness. Come on. Look at that. Uh, but Hart Bennett wanted to direct that prequel and ended up... Uh, it ended up that Paramount wanted to do one last movie with the original series Star Trek, which is also one of the reasons why I love this movie so much. It's just a marvelous finale to an incredible run uh, for these actors. Uh, for any fans of The Next Generation, you can obviously tell that that is very much the Enterprise D uh, engineering set from Star Trek The Next Generation. Just not even trying. Appearance of David Marcus, uh, Kirk's son, played by Merritt Budrick. I can never forgive them for the death of my boy. That part's important. Pay attention to that part. Seems to me our mission. Uh, Hart Bennett uh, not only wanted to make Star Trek The First Adventure, he wanted to direct that movie. Uh, Paramount wanted to do one last movie with these folks, so Hart Bennett bowed out if he couldn't direct. And so the creative reins kind of went back to Leonard Nimoy, who had also been creatively involved in the other films, not just in an acting capacity, but also directed Star Trek's three and four. It also was one of the, I believe, co-writers of Star Trek four. And is a not necessarily prolific director, but an accomplished director in his own right. Three men and a baby, anyone? 
is an honor to serve. Leonard Nimoy directed Three Men and a Baby. So, uh, Leonard Nimoy uh, thought, what interesting times that we live in. And Nicholas Meyer, who had directed uh, the kind of the most successful, most well-regarded Star Trek film still to this point, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, has, and also co-wrote Star Trek for the even ones or the good ones, in case you're ever wanting to watch any Star Trek movies. The even ones are pretty darn good until, like, Star Trek Ten. then the even ones get bad and the odd ones get good. You just got to trust me on that one. But anyways, Leonard Nimoy uh, went to Nicholas Meyer, uh, previous collaborator on the Star Trek movies, and said, funny times that we're living in. What about, what if our story for Star Trek VI is an analogy for all of these times that we are living in? Uh, Nicholas Meyer is not a science fiction person. He has an affinity for H.G. Wells and... Sherlock Holmes, Shakespeare, which you'll see, or rather hear so many allusions to Shakespeare's work in the rest of this film. Uh, but Nicholas Meyer sparked to that idea uh, and was returned to the director's seat for this film. Uh, these quarters are Spock's quarters, big surprise, but one of the points of contention that Leonard Nimoy had on Star Trek II with Nicholas Meyer is that his quarters, Spock's quarters rather, were not good enough. Uh, it was a really brightly lit thing that, with some sort of tapestry that looked like it was shoddily put together from a mall. Looked bad and not mysterious as opposed to these quarters which are very dark and expressionistic. I could only succeed you, sir. That's obviously Kim Cattrall from Sex and the City. I know you guys are wondering, yeah, she done Mannequin by this point. Uh, my favorite Star Trek TV episode and why? Um, that's a question from Jeremy Olson, is that correct? Uh, obviously, that ship is a, a D7 cruiser, uh, also known as Katinga class Klingon cruiser. Uh, but my favorite Star Trek TV episode... Oh, boy. I really enjoy Yesterday's Enterprise uh, from Star Trek The Next Generation on a very like a visceral level because you get to see two Enterprises, the Enterprise D and the Enterprise C. The Enterprise C travels through a, uh anomaly and changes the flow of history and putting the Federation at war with Klingons once again. Uh, yeah. It's marvelous. You're welcome, Jeremy. Jeremy just thanked me for the answer. Right standard rudder, Z plus five degrees. Channel is open, Captain. This is the Starship Enterprise. Captain James T. Kirk commanding. That is David Warner. You've probably seen him in things because, well, he's David Warner. I don't I don't know what else you want from me. Uh, David Warner is no stranger to the Star Trek franchise. Uh, he plays, I believe, Gold Masset. Uh, I could definitely be getting that wrong. Uh, in the Chain of Command Part 2 and Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, additionally, he was just in a Star Trek movie. 
uh, in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, he plays the uh, ambassador David St. Talbot, uh, kind of a drunkard, no good doer guy. So it's wild that he's here playing Chancellor Gorkon, uh, head of the Klingon Empire, and dinner guest with uh, the crew of the Enterprise. There is a supply of Romulan ale aboard. It might make the evening pass more smoothly. Officer thinking, Lieutenant. Guess who's coming to dinner? That's a movie. Anyways. Um, this set here is a redress of the Star Trek The Next Generation transporter set. One of the running motifs that you'll probably get uh, during this commentary is me pointing out just how cheap this production was sometimes. Uh, Christopher Plummer! There he is! Look at him! He's playing a Klingon! He's got an eye patch bolted! Listen to me. Listen to me. Christopher Plummer. <clears throat> One of the great American actors, Christopher Plummer, is playing a Klingon with an eye patch bolted to his face. It's thrilling, uh, especially since the, uh, the one of the last villains of the Star Trek movie is played by actor Lawrence Luckinbill. He played Cybok in the in the last one, and that's that's not Christopher Plummer. Oh, we've got Christopher Plummer this time. That's so much better. My military advisor, Brigadier Kurla. And this is General Chang, my chief of staff. I have so wanted to meet you, Captain. I'm not sure how to take that. Sincere admiration, Kirk. From one warrior to another. Sorry to stop talking. Uh, I just really like the interplay between Kirk and Chang. Uh, the pattern on the transporter in the back of the set, uh, those weird squares... Those are based off of a sweater that production designer Herman Zimmerman wore. Uh, that's that's the interesting fact for that. Um, that those signs right there, those are I guess canon accurate. Usually those signs have little in jokes for them, but for this film, Nicholas Meyer wanted all of the signage to actually have a function, which is just wild. Uh, never will ever see it. Back to the exteriors. And now we're at one of my favorite scenes, period. Uh, this scene was filmed over the course of three or four days. The food that is in front of them is squid that is dyed blue with just vegetable food coloring. Uh, the cast that are present at the dinner table absolutely did not want to eat it because it was fish that was sitting underneath hot movie lights for days on end. I offer a toast. The Undiscovered Country. Hey, that's the movie title. That's the movie title. The Undiscovered Country. Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1. You have not experienced Shakespeare until you have read him in the original Klingon. Uh, the blue drink is Romulan Ale, John Nee. Uh, Romulan Ale is a 
illegal substance in the Federation, but it's very much considered a delicacy, something like akin to Cuban cigars. Uh, to talk a little bit about the line that Chancellor Gorkon just said, uh, you haven't experienced Shakespeare until you've read it in the original Klingon. Uh, according to director Nicholas Meyer, that is a reference to what Europe would just do with Shakespeare. Uh, the Germans would claim that Shakespeare was German and say, you have not experienced Shakespeare until you've experienced in the original German. Uh, now, for fans to hear this, because Star Trek fans are absolutely insane. I mean, look at me. Um, what happened is that people took that line and ran with it. There is a published version of the Klingon Hamlet, you can you can go buy that. You can go buy that, and that has also been put on and produced across the world uh, on the special features of, I believe, the Star Trek Six Blu-ray. You can actually watch select scenes from a translated version of Hamlet into Klingon. If you could only hear yourselves, human rights, why the very name is racist. The Federation. To kind of go back to the blue squid that's sitting in front of all of them. Uh, none of the crew, none of the cast wanted to eat the food. Uh, so Nicholas Meyer, in order to try and get some people to eat the food, said, I will pay you $20. To be or not to be. That is the question which this line. our people, Captain Kirk. We need breathing room. Earth, Hitler, 1938. Oh, a little stinker. What a little stinker. Or Chang's not Hitler. He's Christopher Plummer. Uh, but anyways, Nicholas Meyer offered anyone that would eat the blue squid 20 bucks. And the only one that was willing to take Nicholas Meyer up on that offer was the man that you see right in front of you on the right-hand side of your screen, William Shatner, uh, who ate the blue squid. And it was 20 bucks per setup. So William Shatner walked away with a fair amount of cash that day. Uh, Chancellor Gorkond, you might have already surmised, is kind of a play off of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, the, uh, I believe, final ruler of the Soviet Union. Just making those analogies even clearer. Captain, have we not heard the chimes at midnight? Shakespeare. I don't know if you know that. That's Shakespeare. Christopher Plummer really, 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 really loved playing General Chang. Uh, he shows up. Uh, he, he shows up in special features and talks very fondly of his experience on Star Trek VI. Uh, Jeremy Olsen asks, is the eye patch bolted to his face? D-doy. Yeah. That's what Klingons do. They take an eye patch and they don't want no sissy pansy string. You just kind of get just a bolter and just bolt that thing to your skull. So you can't get much cooler than an eye patch unless you're a bald Klingon. That's just quoting Shakespeare. Uh, for people that don't know, that's Spock that you're looking at right now. Uh, Khan89 asks, wasn't Red Shirts the one that always died first? In the original series, yes. Uh, in the original series, uh, your main characters were very often in yellow, command yellow. That's what Kirk's tunic wore. 
uh, was, uh, or science in medical blue, which is what Spock and McCoy often wore. And security and tactical were always put in red shirts, and it was always Ensign Smith, Ensign Jones, something along those lines. But the reason that there were such bold colors in the original series is because uh, NBC wanted to move television, specifically color televisions, because color television was a brand new technology at the time. But whenever the movies came along, we were working with, well, at least in the motion picture, a lot more of a subdued, realistic color palette. If you look at the uniforms in Star Trek, the motion picture, you've got like blues and beiges and whites and beige. And you've got like light blues and beige. And then when Star Trek II came along, Nicholas Meyer wanted something that's a little bit more militaristic and redesigned all the uniforms uh, to be that big, bold, bright red. So that's... I mean, the red shirts just kind of stay alive because everyone has a red shirt now. you got to keep Captain Kirk alive, at least until like the next movie. Uh, this is really lovely. I just love this sequence. We're a monitor. Aye, sir. Direct hit. Confirmed, sir. That shot right there is a flipped shot. Uh, Kirk was supposed to be looking the other way, but they just needed something to establish a better physical geography. And so that's what they did. This is the first time, canonically, that we've seen any characters in Star Trek uh, lose gravity uh, for some reason. Uh, every single system on any type of ship could go off, but the gravity, for some reason, always stays on. No centrifuge, no nothing, but that gravity would always stay secure, at least until this thing. Uh, gosh, that's cool. Uh, the music is done by Cliff Eidelman. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, that might be because he's the composer of such hardcore action hits. He's just not that into you, or the sisterhood of the traveling pants. Uh, right now they're just being suspended with strings. Uh, it's really lovely. It's just cool to see characters uh, in Zero-G for the first time in Star Trek. This shot right here, uh, what happened is that they built a corridor that was uh, going vertical and then put stunt people on rigs and just pulled them up and tilted the camera on its side so that way uh, you could shoot a phaser into them and it looked like they were getting pushed back by zero g uh they're not con 89 they are not stormtroopers uh because they're they're making their shots they're hitting the shots uh additionally uh the klingons here have pepto-bismol blood they've got purple blood uh this is one of the few times that we actually see the Klingons have purple blood. Canonically, they usually have dark red blood. Uh, you've seen this in Star Trek to the Next Generation beforehand. You see this on the shows after. They still just kind of always have red blood, except for this. Uh, also, one of the first uses of computer graphics uh, in a Star Trek film. Uh, the first example of computer graphics being used in the Star Trek film was in Star Trek 2. Uh, question for me, was Daft Punk inspired by this film? 
obviously the answer is yes, uh, considering that it's the two robots work, walking around uh, on this vessel. Uh, great question, Johnny. Con eighty nine. This is not Gak. It's just. Well, it might be Gak. I have no idea. Uh, those graphics on the Enterprise, uh, the circles and the bright buttons and whatnot, uh, those were designed by uh, Michael Okuda, a graphic designer that uh, took over kind of the look of Star Trek starting with the end of Star Trek IV. Well, I guess the entirety of Star Trek IV. Um, he created a system because they needed something that was a little bit quicker and more futuristic looking than the buttons and switches of the original series. So what they did is uh, just used plexiglass and created these patterns. So all you had to do is just shine a light behind it and boom, you've got future buttons. Uh, Jeremy Olsen asks, do all of the spaceships have a similar button layout? Uh, boy, it sure seems like it. Um, this is, as, as I guess canonically these things go on, uh, the button configurations definitely change. Um, in the previous films so far, we had seen more buttons and switches and whatnot, and then switching over to Michael Okuna's fine designs here, Super Future 8. And then it also creates a visual continuity with uh, the next generation, where they use what's known as the... <laughs> I can't believe this. Uh, I'm doing I'm doing literally all of this from memory. Uh, I have not prepared anything. Uh, I'm literally just speaking extemporaneously. I this is not written down. This is all just from my memory. Um, but like I said, the designs on the Enterprise A, which is the ship that we're coming from, uh, it creates a nice visual continuity with the L cars interface of Star Trek The Next Generation. So it's very close. You kind of see the design lineage, but it looks different. You can go from A to A to D, I suppose. Uh, hey, Jeremy, you're welcome. I'm so glad that I could answer that question for you. Uh, Tanner asks, do they ever explain why most of the other known species are humanoid? Yes, they do. Uh, and I believe it's a season six episode of Star Trek The Next Generation known as The Chase. Uh, in that episode, Captain Picard, captain of the Enterprise D, is visited by an old archaeology friend, I believe it's Picard's former archaeology teacher, who presents him with the Curlin Nascar. <laughs> Again, I'm just doing this from memory. I hope that's okay, folks. Uh, the Curlin Nascar uh, has a fragment of DNA, and people are looking for that fragment of DNA. Uh, Picard's archaeologist friend is killed. Uh, and it's up to Picard to kind of find the missing strands of DNA or I guess missing strands of whatever the message is to put it together. And it turns out that our galaxy had been, I, I believe, seeded by some people that looks humanoid, uh, kind of vague, uh, kind of like they have faces that are made of Play-Doh. It's not a great episode. I don't like the explanation because... I just just let him have 
latex foreheads. Who cares? Doesn't matter. Come on, Derek. Come on. He's not responding. I am such a big fan of just the music cutting out here and just the thuds that Dr. McCoy is giving to Gorkon's chest. Don't let it end this way, Captain. This movie uh, is also the first piece of Star Trek canon to give the Klingon homeworld a proper name of Kronos. That's Q-O-apostrophe-N-O-S. Feel free to write that down. There won't necessarily be a test, but you can just look at it. I don't know. Um... This also just contributes a whole bunch to the lore of Star Trek in general. Um, what set Star Trek The Next Generation apart, one of the things that set Star Trek The Next Generation apart, is the presence of a Klingon uh, officer on the bridge of the Enterprise D. Uh, I don't know if you know this. Phones. <clears throat> Klingons and Starfleet they don't exactly like each other um kind of been sworn enemies so putting a klingon on the bridge of the enterprise d kind of a big deal uh and this movie in particular is kind of serving as a bridge between the two uh, jeremy olsen asks what started the beef between them um not entirely sure but the first appearance of the Klingons, at least in the canon of Star Trek, was in uh, the pilot of the television show Star Trek Enterprise, specifically uh, in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. Shout out to my home state, Broken Bow. It's a city in southeast Oklahoma uh, where the Klingon, I believe his name is Klang. It's got two A's. Anyways, uh, Klang had crashed. It resides in the purview of the diplomats. Uh, this is John Shuck returning as the Klingon ambassador from Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. Uh, but anyways, Klang landed in a broken bow cornfield, which I'm not entirely sure if Oklahoma grows corn. I know all of this stuff uh, about Star Trek, but I don't know about basic agriculture uh, in my home state. Uh, if you're wondering, the answer is yes, that is Kurtwood Smith. <laughs> Uh, A.K.A. Eric's dad from that 70s show, uh, Kurtwood Smith. Not exactly a stranger to Star Trek himself uh, in this movie and then also in the uh, really excellent two-parter uh, in Star Trek Voyager. I think it's season five, uh, Year of Hell, where he plays... Um, gosh darn, I forget exactly what, what it is. Uh, I, but I believe he's the commander of the Krenim time ship and he's going around with a time weapon and cutting entire races out of existence um anyways to return to jeremy's uh, initial question of what started the beef between the klingons and the federation uh the klingons are definitely a warrior race and uh starfleet sending one of their ships to return clang from oklahoma to the klingon homeworld not exactly looked upon because the klingons would prefer that they die in battle uh, and instead, Starfleet just kind of returned them. 
We're to report back at once. We cannot abandon Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy. Of course not. 400 years ago on the planet Earth, workers who felt their livelihood threatened by automation flung their wooden shoes called sabots into the machines to stop them. Hence the word sabotage. How many times have I seen this movie? Asks Jeremy. I, I literally don't know. Again, this is a movie that I've seen so many times. I don't remember a time that I haven't seen it. Um, it could very much be in the... I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. Come on. Um, you might be able to see a building outside uh, behind Kurtwood Smith. Uh, that is the Eiffel Tower, which is indicating that this, uh, uh, this, uh, the Federation headquarters is located in Paris, France. Uh, additionally, this room that they are in is a vaguely redressed version of a set known as Ten Forward from Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, if you watch Star Trek: The Next Generation, you can see the indicative. You can see the curved windows, and they just kind of put a loose curtain. Over it. As you wish, uh, it's awesome that they just rolled out a paper map. That's really great. Uh, you might be able to see over there some uh, a modified uh, Starfleet insignia. Uh, that's actually just the uh, Klingon insignia, three points, uh, designed by Matt Jeffries. Your father was killed for what he wanted. The peace process will go forward. Here we go. Uh, this is one of my absolute favorite scenes in all of Star Trek. Uh, the trial of James T. Kirk and Leonard McCoy for the death of Chancellor Gorkon. Uh, pay attention to that thing that is on, but behind Kirk's right shoulder, left shoulder. Whatever the thing, not the white stripe, but like a, the kind of black rectangle on, on the back of his shirt. The Enterprise fired on Kronos One without provocation. The Chancellor and his advisors, having been lulled into a false sense of security, some of the language that is used in this trial is based off of real testimony from Germany. Uh, I believe around the time of World War II. Um, this set here, uh, a, very, a smaller version of this was found on Star Trek Enterprise uh, in the episode Judgment, where uh, Captain Archer and I believe it's probably Trip uh, were tried uh, for, I don't know, some sort of crime uh, by the Klingon Empire and uh I believe the production designer on Enterprise was also Herman Zimmerman, and he was able to rebuild this cell, but on a television budget, so it was much, much smaller. 
additionally, this is one of the few times that we've seen actual tangible universal translators. Uh, additionally, the, the the illusion is that they actually have translators translating to the earpieces for Kirk and McCoy. Usually, everyone's just kind of talking English. Uh, it's very weird whenever Star Trek decides to have some verisimilitude into it. And McCoy just said, for 26 years, I have been chief medical officer aboard the USS Enterprise, uh, which is interesting because this movie is celebrating the 25th anniversary uh, of Star Trek in general. Star Trek, the first episode was released in September 8th of 1966, and this movie was released December of 1991. Uh, so it's interesting that time is a little bit more expanded than what had actually transpired in real life. Uh, that guy in the back, uh, you might have heard his voice before if you've watched Star Trek before. You know that that is Michael Dorn, uh, who plays Worf on Star Trek The Next Generation, just to add even more connected tissue to uh, Star Trek The Next Generation and the original series. Here, kind of a stretch, he's playing a character named Colonel Worf, who is related to, get this, Worf. So, you know, pretty cool. That means that uh, Michael Dorn has been in uh, five Star Trek movies so far. He come back. Who cares? I tried to save him. I tried to save him. I was desperate to save him. He was the last best hope in the universe for peace. Um, the tensions in between the Klingons and Starfleet in general uh, was established in the original series. I believe in the first episode that the Klingons actually appeared in was an episode called Errand of Mercy. James Tiberius. That's an important moment in Star Trek canon. Uh, that's the first time uh, in Star Trek canon where we have heard what the T in James T. Kirk stands for, and for some reason, it's Tiberius. Uh, never once did we find out what his name was in the original series. He just kept keeps saying uh, James T. Kirk, Captain of the Enterprise. There was one moment in the animated series where he actually gave his middle name, where it was Tiberius, uh, but Gene Roddenberry did not consider the animated series canon. Recently, uh, the animated series has kind of been reclaimed into its place in canon, and you'll see that there are so many allusions to it throughout the course of Star Trek canon in general. I've never trusted Klingons, and I never will. I've never been able to forgive them for the death of my boy. Are those your words? Those words were spoken by me. Objection! My client's political views are not on trial. On the contrary! Captain Kirk's views and motives are indeed. Look at Christopher Plummer chewing this scene. Oh, it's outstanding. Uh, but yes, hearing Tiberius for the first time, uh, pretty darn exciting and also just kind of opens up other areas for the animated series to be considered canon uh one of the things that was recently made into canon was the original commander do 
I'll wait for the translation. Answer me now. I cannot demand. You demoted. Yes. Prince of nation. See, I got it. Con eighty nine. Were you obeying or disobeying orders when you arranged the assassination of Chancellor Gorham? I didn't know about the assassination. Uh, but to return to. <laughs> Uh, making the animated series a little bit more canonical. In Star Trek Discovery, they established that there was a person named Robert April. That name doesn't necessarily mean anything. However, uh, to super hardcore Star Trek fans, they might recognize that name from the initial pitch that Gene Roddenberry made, where Robert April was the initial commanding officer of, I believe, the USS Yorktown, the Enterprise originally called the Yorktown in the pitch. Um, and Robert April in Star Trek Discovery was established as a great commander. Um, and in the animated series was revealed as the first commanding officer of the USS Enterprise. Um, in the comic book series, um, I believe it's Star Trek After Darkness, or no, it's Star Trek Countdown to Darkness, the prequel to the 2013 Star Trek Into Darkness, you actually get to have the Kelvin Universe, James Kirk, bomb around with Robert April and have adventures. Oh, hey, a Sulu. I like that guy. Is Jan ready to assist you? Captain Sulu, USS Excelsior. It is the determination of this court that the prisoners are guilty as charged. That, that guy's important. Uh, the Vulcan that you saw right there is uh, Sarek, who is Spock's father uh played by mark leonard uh, mark leonard is one of the few actors that has the i guess the esteemed pleasure of having played kind of the big three alien races in star trek he played vulcan uh the vulcan ambassador sarek uh, the vulcan ambassador was referenced earlier in this film you've also seen sarek in star trek's uh three and four and five uh but not played by mark leonard uh, Mark Leonard also played a Romulan commander in the incredibly great episode Balance of Terror for the first season of Star Trek, uh, the original series. And then also played the Klingon commander of the uh, lead D7 cruiser in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, I think he might be the very first actor that you see in Star Trek The Motion Picture, actually. Um, he's only a couple years older than Leonard Nimoy in real life, uh, so they gray him up and make him look considerably older so he can pull a playing Spock's father. That right there is James Doohan, who plays Scotty, uh, the dude in the vest and the bright white shirt. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but Scotty <coughs> is Scottish. Uh, James Doohan brought a Scottish brogue to the voice because he thought that uh, a good engineer would be a Scotsman. Uh, he served in the military uh, and worked with, based the voice off of uh, one of his military comrades. Uh, to Johnny's wife, uh, I say hello back. I would suggest that you try out the Klingon greeting to your wife. Which translates into, what do you want? An ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That line that 
This box set right there uh, is an allusion to Sherlock Holmes. Nicholas Meyer is a massive, massive fan of Sherlock Holmes. I believe has written Sherlock Holmes' book himself. And that line right there uh, alludes that Spock has direct lineage to Sherlock Holmes, which is awesome. Uh, more than likely on his mother's side, Spock. Uh, for folks that don't know, uh, Spock is not just Vulcan. He's half Vulcan, half human. One of the great delights of watching the original series is watching Spock struggle with the path to deciding pure logic, which is the way in Vulcans, or having to deal with his human side um, on his mother's side and having to wrestle with that. And the character arc that he goes through over the course of these movies and even into the J.J. Abrams movies is him coming to terms with his emotions and becoming even more emotional. Uh, as Spock says in the beginning of this movie, logic is only the beginning of wisdom and he is able to reconcile both halves and live a life of good stuff, man. Johnny asks what my thoughts are on Voyager. It's fine. Um, it becomes very repetitive as further as the series goes on. Uh, it very much becomes... Star Trek is best whenever it's about uh, people and big ideas, uh, hard to grapple with ideas and hard moral dilemmas. What Star Trek often is, is some piece of technobabble uh, that gets solved with another piece of technobabble. Resolutions don't come from character. It's from creating an inverted tachyon field to create a static warp shell that can hopefully jostle us through into the anomaly and be able to collapse it from the inside out. That's from all good things. And that's kind of what Voyager became towards the end. Um, kind of thick the first couple seasons start off good because it's a little bit more serialized and it's more character based and then about the middle it really dips and then towards the tail end whenever the stories become a little bit more serialized a little bit more character centric and there's an end in sight i think the show improves dramatically uh arden p asks did i like scotty in the new movies yes yes i did uh, I think Simon Pegg did a great job as Scotty. Um, Simon Pegg, uh, big nerd dude anyways. Uh, he was kind of reluctant to take the role of Scotty in the first place because for nerds, it's massive shoes to fill. Um, James Dewan's portrayal as Scotty is so iconic. Uh, so to bring anything that might deviate from that risking and i think simon peg did a really wonderful job and made it his own uh what we're looking at now is uh something that we've never seen in science fiction which is a snowy ice planet on the surface nothing can survive this is the penal colony of Rurapente, uh where kirk and mccoy have been relegated to uh again like the klingon judgment chamber um we also saw this location in the Star Trek Enterprise episode, Judgment, where Captain Archer and Trip uh, escaped. Uh, 
and I believe had to ally themselves with the character or gosh, I could definitely be remembering the episode incorrectly but allied themselves with the character played by uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine actor J.G. Hertzler playing yet another Klingon um, it's not great it kind of diminishes the power of this movie by having that episode even exist in canon uh, these are filmed in actual caverns around the Los Angeles area. I forget exactly where they are, but those are, those are real caves. Isn't that neat, guys? Khan89 asks, are those real caves? Uh, I, 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 they're real. Those are real caves. These are The caves are actually real. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what else you want from me. It is neat. So, uh, more than likely, you're looking at the makeup design of Michael Westmore. Uh, Johnny asks, is that dog thing a dog or a puppet or a person? Uh... All three of those, that's a dog person that is put in a puppet costume. Uh, really interesting, just another example of Star Trek being progressive and hiring dog people to be puppeteers. Uh, right there! Uh, that bird lady right there is uh, Iman, uh, famous supermodel and also wife of the, uh, of the late David Bowie. She's just rad. I don't know, I don't know what you want me to say. <laughs> Thanks. This will help keep you warm. One of the few instances that you see of a character smoking in Star Trek. Uh, in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, there were initially signs on the Enterprise, uh, I believe is actually on the Enterprise training bridge, that said no smoking, either on the bridge of the Enterprise or on the transporter set. And Gene Roddenberry saw the signs uh, on a day that he was actually visiting the set of Star Trek II. And he said, smoking wouldn't exist in the 23rd century. So Nicholas Meyer had all of these things pulled down. One of the few instances of actually seeing a proper kitchen uh, in Star Trek as well. Um, on the original series, you would just walk up to a food slot and it would give you food. And then by the time of Star Trek The Next Generation... You wouldn't even walk up to a slot and it would give you food. It would just magically materialize. Why not simply vaporize them? Like this? Uh, if you're paying attention like a nerd, like I do, you can notice that the walls are scratched and... Uh, grungier and grittier looking than you might expect the Enterprise, the flagship of the Federation, to look. Look at that pole right there, and you can see that that is scrapped. That's because Nicholas Meyer wanted to have these things look a little bit distressed, adding to a greater sense of realism, making the ship a lot more lived in. Uh, Star Trek is famous for its squeaky clean ships. Star Trek is a hot take. This is a hot take, y'all, so I hope that you're sitting down. 
Star Trek is not Star Wars. Uh, Star Trek has smooth, clean lines. It's it's all about smoothness. The initial, uh, I guess, production designer, illustrator, Matt Jeffries, who designed the iconic original series, Enterprise, uh, made sure that the exterior of the ship had absolutely no hanging parts on it. His reasoning of having that is because if you're traveling through the galaxy at speeds that were faster than light, if even a smallest speck of dust were to hit the ship, it would just tear a hole through the ship, which is why the ship has shields in the first place and the exterior is so smooth. So things aren't breaking off. Uh, now, why that left outrageously thin neck and thin struts within a cell, like that could just knock those things off, which is exactly what happened in Star Trek Beyond. Um, but, okay, I know the reason why to that. I just kind of wanted to seem cooler than I am. Uh, but, of course, I've been extemporaneously talking about Star Trek VI for the past hour, and I hope, I hope that that's okay. Con89 asks, so do I not like the distressed look? I think it's fine. Uh, I don't like it. I don't dislike it. Um, it makes sense. I just like my things to be clean. Uh, that's that's it. I like my Star Trek to be shiny and clean because it's kind of a reflection of the people, which are supposed to be better than us. Tanner Shell explains, do they explain why lasers are so slow? Uh... I'm sure that in some technical manual that I have yet to read, uh, it is explained. Um, I don't know. Going pretty fast anyways. I mean, it's light beams. What do you want? Uh, also, they're not lasers, Tanner. They're phasers. Uh, in the initial pilot for Star Trek, they were known as laser pistols. Uh, and it looks different, but by the time that they were able to filmed the second pilot, Gene Roddenberry went, well, shoot, uh, by the time that this show comes out, lasers might be just commonplace, so we need something that's more advanced than lasers, which is where the term phasers comes from, because I don't, it's it's not lasers, it's, fa it's phased light. Do you want to get out of here? There's got to be a way. Iman is really great in this movie. Con um, eighty nine says that that's my favorite fact so far. I'm assuming that's in uh, relation to me being really cool. We're not finished. Speak for yourself. One day, one night. Kobayashi Maru. Kobayashi Maru. Uh, that's a reference to the training simulator at the beginning of Star Trek II and a running theme throughout that entire movie. Uh, the Kobayashi Maru for uh, big old nerds is a shorthand for a no-win scenario. In the training simulator, uh, what happens is that the uh, vessel Kobayashi Maru is in distress in the Klingon neutral zone and it's up to uh, cadets to try and formulate a way to be able to rescue the stranded passengers of the Kobayashi Maru. But spoiler alert, you never do. Uh, it is supposed to be a judge of character 
at least according to Star Trek II. Uh, but in 2009, Star Trek, it's explained that the Kobayashi Maru is uh, supposed to make you feel afraid. So that's different. Um, and one of the... Uh, Jeremy Olsen says, I wonder if Sean Kobayashi knows about this. Probably. People know what Kobayashi Maru is, right? Shut up. Shut up. Uh, but in Star Trek II, uh, one of the running themes is this no-win scenario and how uh, then-Admiral Kirk dealt with the Kobayashi Maru. Um, and it turns out, uh, what you find out at the almost end of that movie is that Kirk cheated. He is the only cadet to have won the no-win scenario by reprogramming the conditions of the test. Uh, John asks, when will you start a podcast where you go through each movie? Just like every movie, like starting with A and ending with Z? And ending probably with Zizek's Road, starring Tom Sizemore and Catherine Heigl? Uh, you can currently listen to me talk about movies on my podcast, Shame Watch. That is something that you can do, well, not right now, but but later at least rate it five stars it's good for the algorithm at least that's what the other podcasts that i listen to tell me oh look at that kirk you dog even getting smooches well into your 60s and mccoy justifiably annoyed wonder what david bowie thought about her smooching on william shatner i know that it was a good day for william shatner What is it with you, anyway? Still think we're finished? More than ever. Sorry to wake you, sir. What is it? Starfleet urgently requests any data we have. Does that voice sound familiar to you, listeners? Does it? Because this face is about to seem familiar. Apparently. Yes, that's christian slater right there probably i guess most famous now for mr robot now you might be wondering teddy why the heck is christian slater here uh well uh his mother mary joe slater i believe is the casting director on this film and christian slater being a big fan of star trek six at the time wanted a part literally anything which is why he has a cameo in this film talking to zulu Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but that is Chekhov. Chekhov's presence in the original series crew was kind of a watershed moment. Uh, he was, in addition, he wasn't part of the original, original crew. He was actually added in the second season of Star Trek because the network wanted someone that was kind of a Davy Jones type. And um, I almost said Pavel Chekhov. Uh, Walter Koenig, who is the actor that plays Pavel Andreevich Chekhov, looked very much like Davy Jones. At the time, they just put a mop top on him and just put a mop top wig on him, and he was basically the Davy Jones presence on the ship. But instead of kind of being a plucky kid relief, instead, Gene Roddenberry went, let's make him a Russian, which having a uh, Russian helm officer, well, no, he wasn't helm, he was... Sulu was helm and Chekhov was navigation. Or was it 
Sulu that was navigation check off was a helm. I'm sorry! Uh, but to have a Russian presence on the bridge of a ship which is ostensibly basically run by space Americans kind of a big deal and just kind of speaking to how much further we would move as humanity. They made that boot stick on the wall with Velcro. Uh, if you rewind it, you can actually see the grayed strips of Velcro there. Um, but yes, the addition of Chekhov was supposed to be a little bit more, I don't know, kid-friendly at the time. And upon his addition, Chekhov got a tremendous amount of fan mail. And then he just kind of became another functional member of the crew. And that's it. Um, speaking of fan mail, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy always had a tension in between them. Uh, William Shatner being the guy that plays Captain Kirk, Leonard Nimoy play, being the guy that plays Spock. Because Leonard Nimoy would get about the same amount of fan mail as William Shatner, if not a little bit more. Crewman Dax? Yes, Commander. What is the problem? Perhaps you know Russian epic of Cinderella. If shoe fits, wear it. Uh, this crew member here that is not Chekhov or uh, Valeris back there is Crewman Dax. Uh, that's just a crew member's hands that are in makeup. Uh, it's hypothesized that Crewman Dax has some sort of relation to the Star Trek Deep Space Nine character, Jazia Dax. But nothing has been established canonically, but because two people just can't have the same name, everyone's related. Uh, these lasers that you see right there are hand-animated. Um, not computers, not even just the normal process of how they make lasers. Instead, it was rigorously hand-animated uh, for that field. Uh... One of the fun things about this movie is that it's a Star Trek movie, and I really like Star Trek. Those are Klingons, and those are characters. The characters in uh, The Wool that are walking up there are characters that I like. And I like the things that I like, especially whenever it's with Klingons. That right there, that morphing was actual computer graphics there. Uh, morphing was on Vogue. En Vogue? In Vogue? It was cool at the time. Uh, most popularly around that time, I guess it was used in the Michael Jackson black or white video. You know, they used it there to turn that giant uh, monster dude into that little girl, and that's, that's cool. You know. Uh, what they did right there, uh, they put a strategically placed a, a piece of rock hidden there and then just had that small actress walk in behind and then have the other actor walk out, or I guess crawl out. And, you know, it's a little, it looks like they just kind of morphed and it's cool, you know? Uh, they're currently on a stage. 
right there. Walking through, and then uh, very soon we're going to go, you know, to more stage. And those are exterior shots that were shot in Alaska, I believe, with none of the main actors as a second unit photography. This is what's known as walking, uh, when characters are using their feet and legs to kind of uh, push their bodies forward uh, without being on all four legs, or on, on all four limbs. If they're just using their legs, it's walking, uh, and if they're using their uh, legs and arms, uh, that's known as crawling, uh, which we saw in the previous scene. Does this movie feature more walking than other Star Treks? Uh, honestly, I'd probably say the 2009 Star Trek probably has the most walking. There's a lot of running in that movie. I definitely remember that. Um, Star Trek V has a fair amount of walking. There they are. They're emerging from the beaming shield. Mr. Scott. Just bringing up this little tidbit about James Doohan. Uh, as I said earlier, James Doohan served in the military, and one of the things that he suffered from, and well, not necessarily suffered from, but got in military service, that's someone, uh, he lost a finger in service. Uh, so if you look keenly, you can actually see, I think it's on his left hand, I believe he has a missing middle finger. I'm wearing a Viridian patch on my back. Spock slapped it there just before we went on Gorkin's ship. Johnny says, why is Scotty the only one not matching? Great question. Uh, so anyways, uh, you might have heard that. Uh, luckily, Spock put a Viridian patch on Kirk. Uh, that's one of my issues with the movie because it's a little bit convenient. But if you look earlier in the movie, you can actually see right before Kirk leaves. Uh, Kirk and McCoy leave to go to Gorkon's ship. Uh, Spock puts a little rectangle on there. Uh, I have no commentary for this outside of the fact that that guy just looks like Oliver Platt in real life. Which is great. I like Oliver Platt. I guess that's the point of that tidbit. This should have been Oliver Platt. Or John Reese Davies. We must respond personally. Obviously, that's a line that was uh, ADR'd so they could explain why the heck that they're going through books. So as we've mentioned before, usually the universal translators are just kind of manual and they just kind of work. Uh... Also, this kind of sucks because it says that whore is kind of bad at her job because she's just kind of piddling through dictionaries in order to find out how to speak Klingon. I think you'd know. I think you'd know if you were the communications officer on the flagship of the uh, of the Federation. 
if you look at the animation that is right behind Ohura's uh, head where it says stand by, in the bottom right-hand corner, uh, those four numbers are uh, indicative of, I believe, the scene number as well as the graphic number. Uh, so this would be scene 74, I guess, graphic 7, or something along those lines. Look, none of these facts are going to be 100%. Um, again, just speaking off the top of my dome, and I hope, you hope, that I'm doing okay. But at least that, that was the case in Star Trek V, which the graphics uh, of this movie in Star Trek V were done by Michael Okuda. Um, Michael Okuda also went on to, I believe, create some graphics for The Martian, um, for All Mankind, and actually worked with NASA, both he and his wife Denise, worked with NASA on some graphic designs on actual space missions. Um, Star Trek is very, or rather, NASA has been influenced by Star Trek, and Star Trek has been influenced by NASA. Uh, the first space, operational space shuttle was named Enterprise because of a letter-writing campaign, which is just absolutely insane. Um, that Enterprise never actually achieved spaceflight, which sucks, you know. Um, but it just shows you how influential that Star Trek was at the time. Are you crazy? You didn't need our help getting anywhere. Where'd you get these convenient clothes? Don't tell me that flare is standard prison issue. It's to let them know where we are. Ask her what she's getting in return. A full pardon. Which doesn't cover uh, this. An accident wasn't good enough. This is good one of the best things ever. Two would have looked suspicious. Killed one attempting escape. Now that's convincing for both. I've got more to say, Surprise. but just it's going to be William Shatner with William Shatner and one of my favorite lines of just William Shatner's entire career about to happen. Your friends are late. They'll be along. Right here. I can't believe I kissed you. Must have been your lifelong ambition. Uh, Star Trek takes itself fairly darn seriously. So to have that be oddly meta and self-referential about William Shatner, kind of wild that it exists. And also just kind of more reflective of the persona that William Shatner would develop. Um, one Shatner left... Uh, the role of Kirk. Well, he would be featured in the next Star Trek movie, Star Trek Generations, with the Next Generation cast. And then go on to a career of doing comedies where instead of being made fun of because he's William Shatner, embracing the persona and being postmodern version of himself. Uh, even at, I think he's 89 at the time of recording this. Uh, he's still directing things and acting and things. Um, he made a superb documentary that you can find on Netflix about the first couple seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation called Chaos on the Bridge. Uh, as well as what the movie and miniseries called The Captains, where William Shatner sits down with every person that's played a captain 
in the Star Trek franchise up until 2015 and talks about the effects of Star Trek because this show was, well, this franchise is just incredibly hard to make. You're making graphics intensive science fiction with a very specific type of language. Very often working 12, 14 hour days, five, six days a week. Uh, and it ruined relationships. Uh, this set, again, is... Well, no, this is not 10 forward. Uh, this is a redress of the Enterprise D Observation Desk, also known as the Observation Lounge, and is also a redress of the dining room from earlier in this movie. Uh, you can notice that because of the curved wall. Uh, the set that they're on is a, obviously a Klingon bridge, and that's a Klingon bridge set that has been around since Star Trek IV. Well, not even Star Trek IV, it's Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, that was continually redressed to the other alien bridges. It's just yet another reiteration. Uh, in the previous movie, they used that set, and it had a super dope periscope, which is rad. Uh, that ship is a Klingon bird of prey. That's it. Uh, the Klingon Bird of Prey was first introduced in Star Trek III, The Search for Spot. Uh, in that movie, it was originally written as a Romulan Bird of Prey, uh, but was changed to a Klingon Bird of Prey because Klingons are cooler. Um, well, those, what's really interesting about this is that these are actors, and this is not real. Um, and it's not... Not necessarily see something. If you're talking with real people in real life, they're usually not actors. But these, what you're seeing right now, are actors. And Samuel. Not anymore. Face her own stun at close range. First rule of assassination kill the assassins. Now we're back to square one. Uh, Jeremy Olsen asks, What? Uh, I know, acting is a crazy notion. Uh, I strongly suggest that you read uh, Strasberg Meisner uh, Brando actors all uh, Johnny asks again uh, why isn't Scotty in red uh, excellent question um, so we're seeing more redressed sets from Star Trek The Next Generation um Yet again, the observation deck, the observation lounge from Enterprise D, uh, and the dining room. Uh, this set that we're walking into is a redressed version of Sick Bay from the Enterprise D, which itself is a redress of the Sick Bay sets from the Star Trek movies. Uh, it was just easier to scrounge around parts for movies for the TV show. Uh, just spends less on an already expensive TV show that was getting made. You have to shoot. If you are logical, you have to shoot. So what are the things that Spock does? Sets very often is when things are logical, 
or illogical. And this is the foundation of Vulcan society. Vulcan, um, it was uh, made into a philosophy by the Vulcan philosopher Sorak. At a crime of great, or at a time of great turmoil in Vulcan history, uh, of great emotion, war, basically almost at the end of Vulcan civilization, it was Sirach the philosopher who said that they should follow a way of logic, and soon that way took off and fueled the entire backbone of Vulcan society. And Kim Cattrall here is playing Valeris. Well, she's been playing Valeris the entire movie. Like, that's not specific to now. But she's been playing... She plays a character called Valeris. Her character's name is Valeris. Uh, interesting tidbit here. Uh, you'll notice that her turtleneck is red, uh, but the uh, strap that is on her uniform is a different color than red. Um that's just because no one paid attention enough. That's it. That's it. There's a gaff uh, on the, her first day, but uh, they kept it consistent, and that's it. But anyways, uh, Valeris was supposed to be another character in... Um, Valeris was supposed to be another character from Star Trek lore. Savick, who was first introduced in Star Trek II, was played by Cheers actress Kirstie Alley. She, she wasn't Cheers actress Kirstie Alley at the time. She was just like struggling actress Kirstie Alley. And then she got Cheers uh, from that. Uh, Savick was Spock's protege, apprentice, as it were. And to have Savick come back in this role uh, would have really put an entirely new dimension on this character. Gene Roddenberry uh, put his foot down, even though he didn't have any involvement with movies two through six. He said that the audience liked Savick too much to make her into the saboteur and the villain, so they created the uh, character of Valeris. Uh, the name Valeris, I believe, was thought of by Kim Cattrall. Um, from the word eros or love, I believe, in either Greek or Roman. Look, I'm a Star Trek expert, not a language expert. But it's the word eros to add a seductive quality to her character, and then in order to make it alien, she's playing a Vulcan, so they just added the Vol in front of it. Uh, hence the name Valeris. Right now, Spock is performing a the classic mind melt on Valeris. Usually, mind melts are a little less reluctant, a little less abrasive. Who else? Romulan. Ambassador. Analysis. Where is the peace conference? Where is the peace conference? Beat sound behind there. <laughs> 
does not know. Outrageously out of character for Spock to do that, that, but it's such an effective scene. Good lord. <laughs> I've been dead before. I absolutely love that line. Here. I have been dead before. Oh, that's a reference to the fact that Spock's Spock died. Spock's been dead. That's one of the famous things about Spock. Spock died. He died in Star Trek to the tail end of Star Trek too. Uh, and then in the search of Spock, came back. Um, what happened in, for those that are not familiar with Star Trek? Uh, at the tail end of Star Trek two, he performed what you just saw, Mind Meld, but all on Dr. McCoy. And in Star Trek three, you find out that he transferred, basically... Uh, his soul into Dr. McCoy uh, via mind melt. Uh, so they were able to reclaim Spock's body, merge it back uh, with Spock's soul, and then he stopped being dead, which is great. Uh, you might have just heard Sulu mention the Alpha Quadrant, or rather Alpha Quadrant. He talks about Beta Quadrant at the beginning of this movie. So the first mention... Uh, as far as I know, uh, in the chronology of Star Trek, of the fact that the galaxy that the Federation exists in operates in a quadrant system. Uh, the Federation is an Alpha Quadrant because Alpha's the best. Uh, Excelsior came from Beta Quadrant. Um, in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, they explore the Gamma Quadrant via a wormhole that is located outside Bajor. And then in Star Trek Voyager, uh, the Voyager gets sent 70,000 light years away from Earth to the Delta Quadrant. You said it yourself that the logic of peace is weak in the face of the risks. This is a redressed version of uh, the character Ilya's quarters from Star Trek The Motion Picture and was also just used as quarters. Uh, in Star Trek until the end of the series, until the end of Star Trek Enterprise, uh, one of the things that you will notice if you just go through the entire franchise from Star Trek: The Motion Picture to the end of Star Trek Enterprise is that they reuse so many small pieces, big pieces, throughout the whole show because it's expensive to do science fiction. Every single thing that you see has to be made from scratch. That we too, you and I, have grown so old and so fire extinguisher back there. We have outlived uh, our usefulness. I've never seen that fire extinguisher before. That's incredible. A joke. Don't crucify yourself. It wasn't your fault. I was responsible for no actions but your own. That is not what uh, you said at your trial. I was his captain of the ship. When Leonard Nimoy has talked about this scene, he talks about it working on multiple levels, talking about the usefulness of these characters and fitting into the motif of endings and coming to the end of your journey, and both Kirk and Spock coming to the end of their journey, and then William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy coming to the end of their time with Star Trek, basically. But they had been playing these characters for 25 years, which is just incredible. Uh, as you can see, these characters are located in the Power Rangers Command Center.
the Klingon bird of prey has just gone to cloak. That clock up there, uh, this was added by director Nicholas Meyer. We've never really seen a visual representation of time in Star Trek before. Uh, Tanner Shell says that place looked like the Power Rangers HQ. Yeah, that's why I made that killer excellent joke that so many people laughed at. Absolutely. Uh, great observation. Um, but going back to the clocks. Yeah, this is where we are at the point in my commentary. We're literally talking about the clocks. Uh, but it's interesting because we've never seen a visual representation of time. And Nicholas Meyer wanted to just add that just as a little bit of realism for the set. Um, you might know, you might not know, but as opposed to the standard Gregorian calendar, uh, is it the Gregorian calendar? I don't know what our actual unit of calendar measurement is, but I know what the measurement system is, uh, in Star Trek was the Stardate system. Um, and in the original series, in the original series movies, it's usually four digits point and then followed by a digit. So, um. So there are no sense of months, dates, and years, but it's, I, I believe in the chronology of uh, Star Trek, this is expected to have happened in our year 2293. I could be wrong. It could be 2291. Um, and the original series is expected to have taken place in uh, 2266 to 2269. Can you see me? Uh, those clocks uh, wreaked havoc on continuity. Having to constantly reset the clocks and make sure that things would match up between cuts. No peace in our time. Once more unto the breach. So this is the part of the movie that's awesome and cool, and it has Christopher Plummer just quoting Shakespeare. Tach pa, tach This is fun. Reverse engines. On the stern. One and a half impulse power. Back off. Back off. The Enterprise takes pounding in this movie and it's absolutely exquisite. I love the action of this. Uh, John Nee asks, why does Montgomery Scott get to wear a black vest? Look, the mean answer is probably that uh, James Doohan is more comfortable in just the white turtleneck and a black vest. He's chief engineer. He's wearing an engineering vest. At least that's how it's known uh, in Star Trek canon. Uh, so, to talk a little bit more about Star Trek Voyager in the uh, episode flashback, uh, we actually revisit the events of this movie from perspective of Excelsior, specifically from the perspective of uh, Voyager's Lieutenant Tuvok, who is... Um, 90 something years old I think at the time of Voyager which makes him old enough to have served on the Excelsior which was one of his assignments before leaving Starfleet for a good long amount of time uh, so we actually get to see what Excelsior was up to uh, while Enterprise was busy trying to broker peace between the Klingons uh, and the Federation uh, this model looks Absolutely gorgeous. Um, this model first seen in Star Trek, the motion picture, and slightly modified by them 
painting an A on it in Star Trek Four. That makes it a different ship. Like any other vessel, we call it plasma. But whatever the Klingon designation, it is merely ionized gas. Well, what about all of that equipment we're carrying to catalog gaseous anomalies? Well, the thing's got to have a tailpipe. Doctor, would you care to assist me in performing surgery on a torpedo? Uh, Dr. McCoy is played by DeForest Kelly. Uh, DeForest Kelly was most famous for playing Dr. McCoy, but was also a well-established actor in a tremendous amount of classic Hollywood westerns. Um, he largely stopped acting uh, after his run on Star Trek. Uh, he was in the one of the few Gene Roddenberry written films, Pretty Maids, all in a row. Um, and then basically did Star Trek movies and a couple voice roles here and there. Um, there's a story about DeForest Kelly being honored later in his life sometime after this film, but not for Star Trek, but for his Western output. And while uh, DeForest was always glad to talk about his time on Star Trek, there was a particular glee in being honored for his work in Westerns. Look at that! Torpedo just hit the saucer! Our revels now are ended, Kirk. Uh, those hallways... Uh, those are actually have been narrowed. Those are refit corridors, again, a running motif from Star Trek The Next Generation, which are actually modified versions of the corridors from Star Trek The Motion Pictures and the, and the movie franchise in general. Uh, but for this movie, Nicholas Meyer wanted the thing to feel a little bit more claustrophobic, a little bit more like a submarine, a little bit more like the military. So he literally just narrowed the hallways. And there they are, blowing up. The observation. The hull has been compromised. Wonder how bad. Connect echo bars. Discuss the report on phase two. Alter circuit A. Sensor. The Klingon that is currently assembling that gun um, is Rene Auberginois. Uh, Rene Auberginois is an actor who went on to play Constable Odo in Star Trek Deep Space Nine and has a tremendous amount of other wonderful acting roles in general. She's ready, Jim! Lock and load! Fire! Come on! Come on! That's what Martin Scorsese was talking about whenever he's talking about cinema. To be or not. Look at that! Target that explosion and fire. Fire! Look, I could say that I like Star Trek because it offers an optimistic view about humanity and one of the few pieces of uh, popular fiction that says that humans could fix everything. Uh, but come on, it's, it's all about the spaceships, right? Ah, uh, Johnny, look at him. Uh, Scotty's in his proper uh, uniform. But anyways, that Klingon assassin, you find out, is a subplot that is deleted from this film, uh, where you find out that this Klingon assassin uh, 
is actually a secret Federation employee. Oh, secret. secret Federation officer named Colonel West. Uh, yet another allusion to uh, more conservative elements that are operating. Uh, Colonel West being a playoff of uh, Colonel uh, Oliver North, uh, who was involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. Oh, he got caught right there good. He got caught right there good. What's happened? What's the meaning of all of this? It's about the future, Madam Chancellor. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well, we haven't run out of history quite yet. Your father called the future. The speech here talks so much about what Nicholas Meyer and Leonard Nimoy uh, and also screenwriter Denny Martin Flynn were trying to hit home uh, where the U.S. and the Soviet Union seemed to be at the end of history at the time. Didn't know how to move forward with themselves. What do you do when you no longer have an enemy? There's a Romulan. That, that bald guy is a Romulan. Just want you to know there's one. Tanner points out the slow clap. Always a winner. And having Kirk and company overcome well-established uh, hatred of the Klingons in order to work for a better tomorrow. Because Klingons had always been the enemy up to this point. Shoot. Uh, one of the villains in the last movie weren't Klingons. And to have them overcome this and work together for a better tomorrow... It's just great. Once again, we've saved civilization as we know it. And the good news is they're not going to prosecute. Oh, they might as well have prosecuted me. I felt like Lieutenant Valaris. Well, they don't arrest people for having feelings. And it's a good thing, too. If they did, we'd all have to turn ourselves in. Captain Kirk. Captain Sulu. As much to the crew of the Enterprise, I owe you my thanks. Uh, the scene right here on the bridge of the Enterprise is the last scene that was filmed for this film and for this configuration of actors ever again. My God, that's a big ship. Not so big as her captain, I think. I believe the last time that all of these actors were together was, I believe, at a Star Trek convention in either 96 or 97, I believe, a convention in Las Vegas. Uh, DeForest Kelly passed away in uh, 1999. Leonard Nimoy only passed away a couple of years ago. James Doohan died uh, earlier in the 20 teens. If I were human, I believe my response would be, go to hell. If I were human. Leonard Nimoy would later appear in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies. William Shatter would appear in the next Star Trek movie. Second star to the right. And straight on till morning. James Dewan would appear one more time as Scotty 
on the Star Trek The Next Generation episode of Relics. Uh, Leonard Nimoy would also portray Spock on The Next Generation of the two-parter Unification, uh, which was also released to celebrate the 25th anniversary. Captain's log, Stardate 95.29.1. This is the final cruise. William Shatner recorded this cap final captain's log uh, live on the actual bridge of the Enterprise. Not the actual actual Enterprise, but on the set of the Enterprise. And then they called it a day. And journey to all the undiscovered countries, boldly going where no man, where no one, has gone before. And that final change of phrase from where no man has gone before to where no one has gone before, it's more a reference to the opening dialogue of Star Trek The Next Generation every episode where... Uh, Picard says boldly going where no one has gone before. Uh, this sign-off might look a little bit familiar. Uh, that's because Avengers Endgame directly ripped it off. Uh, the Russo brothers are a big fans of this movie, uh, as am I, and so they stole it. So all of the main Avengers could literally sign off at the end of Endgame. Uh, which, whenever I saw that, look, I really liked Endgame, but the one moment that I actually actively pumped my fists in the theater is whenever the actors signed off at the end of Endgame. And finally, William Shatner signing off. Well, folks, you picked a funny time to join the Star Trek franchise. Uh by the absolute last Star Trek with the original series crew. Uh, I would highly recommend that you go watch other Star Trek so you can appreciate the rest of Star Trek. Todd Bryant, that name right there, you can see that, uh, he was the captain of the Klingon vessel in Star Trek V. Uh, thank you guys so much for letting me do this. Uh, this is my absolute favorite movie of all time. And I really didn't hear any of the dialogue because I was talking so much. Again, this is all literally off the top of my head. Thank you so much. Y'all are lovely and wonderful. If you're looking for a fabulous place to start, um, honestly, the original series Star Trek can be a little bit hard to get into. I would probably start the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. That's where I would start. Uh, love you guys. Thank you so much for letting me do this. Uh, have lovely times. Bye, y'all. This is Kenny Madison. Sorry.